Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How many of you are list makers? I keep lots of to-do lists. Um, that's aside from whatever honey-do lists I have that I haven't even seen yet. Um, some of them are saved on my computer, and they have their own office documents. Uh, some appear as checklists, also on my laptop. Uh, some are in my phone. Others are scrawled on scraps of paper and the backs of receipts, and they're all over the house. Um, and the really important ones, the ones I really can't afford to forget, go in my pocket until they get so tattered and worn that they're unreadable, at which point I throw them out and pretend I accomplished something. I am the sort of guy that likes to make a list and then act like I, I that in and of itself was an accomplishment, so I am not above putting on the list, make a list, and scratching that off when I'm done. And I will say this with confidence, that I have never in my memory completed any of those lists. They're certainly not in the original time frame, anyway, that I was supposed to do it. Uh, Phil's not here, but he likes to make fun of Franchetti time, which is defined as the original plan plus 15 minutes, right? Um, but that's not really the problem. My problem is that I like my lists to be complete and exhaustive. Uh, and so they are, by default, overly ambitious every time. I tend to put everything on there, not just the stuff that has to happen today, that would be intelligent. I like to put the stuff on there that it would take a miracle to get to. So my lists tend to be long, and because I don't know where to start, I just don't some days. Uh, because my problem is I don't know how to prioritize. And when I make a list that long, it makes things even harder. And maybe you can relate, but I find that the few things I do accomplish are the minor things, the, the quick wins, the, the little stuff, right? because they're easier, and the easier things and the important things are not usually the same things. So I do this with house projects. That's why the garden looks nice, but the garage door is falling apart and has been for years, right? In our last house, I renovated almost everything, but I left the kitchen in shambles. You know, how can you live without a kitchen? Ask Georgia. She did it for five years. And uh, I'm sure the same disease affects ministry at times as well. It's like that meme says, it's amazing what you can get done when you're supposed to be doing something else. I'm a prime example of that, I'm aware. And um, what I'm getting at is setting priorities, figuring out where to start. Because if you don't pick a place to start, you don't get started. And this applies not only to rebuilding kitchens, but also rebuilding a nation. And of course, our story is about that. It's about rebuilding a nation, and not just any nation. We're talking about God's chosen nation. This is, this is the kingdom of Judah, right? which is no longer a kingdom per se, but a petty fiefdom in Persia's western front. Um, and we saw last week that this was only a, a sliver remaining of the original kingdom, really, uh, the one that had peaked under Solomon. Uh, the fact was, after Solomon died, the kingdom had split, right? And both the northern and the southern kingdoms had a lot of troubles. They were, they were rather rebellious. Uh, the northern one was even more rebellious against God, and so he eventually sent them into exile in Assyria, that would be Nineveh. We'll talk about uh, rich irony there coming off of Jonah, right? So that happened several decades earlier than Judah, and uh, those tribes are ultimately lost to history. There are countless conspiracy theories about what happened to the ten lost tribes. But that means that we're talking now about a sliver within a chunk of the original kingdom, right? 
the, the glorious peak years of Solomon, that's long forgotten. So we're left with 50,000 Jews, a drop in the bucket, really. But it includes priests and Levites and temple servants and the great-great-great-grandsons of Solomon's servants. In other words, you, you still have a remnant of uh, the royal household, even though there's no royal house to speak of anymore. And, and several hundred who can't even prove their lineage, or even that they're Jewish, but they want to come along too. Now, Ezra brings up all that, the, the, these categories of, of people that are coming along, and, and that in and of itself is interesting, and, and I think it points to a certain hope. Uh, it is critically important that they, they bring along some priests and Levites and temple servants and that those are accounted for, uh, largely because they expect success when they hit the road. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't need those things. It's the same reason Ezra mentions 200 male and female singers in verse 65. He wants us to know that he brought the church choir with him, right? And it's also worth pausing to praise God that even the questionable Jews were allowed to come. Like, as a Gentile, I find that cool. They really wanted to come, and the fact that they couldn't even prove that they're Jewish, that's not the end of the story. The governor simply says, well... You can't be priests, and you can't eat the holy food, but once we have a priest to consult Orem and Thummim, maybe we'll loosen up, right? And, and so even that expresses a kind of hope, uh, because they expect that they're going to have a priest available before long that can figure these things out. So, so these committed pioneers, they're very enthusiastic. Ezra says that they were stirred up. Back in verse 1, he said, Then rose up the, the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit had stirred to go up, Spirit God had stirred, I'm sorry, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of hope and optimism in chapters 1 and 2. But like most journeys, like most projects, the, the first leg is when everybody's spirits are highest. Uh, if you've ever driven to Florida, you know, when you first hit the road, everyone's excited, the kids are excited, you know. And everyone can already imagine the sunshine and the beaches and everything else. And it's not until you're stuck in traffic on 95, somewhere in the endless Carolinas, right, that you start to lose your enthusiasm, right? And, and likewise, they start off with a lot of enthusiasm. God has remembered them. The, the king is for them. The Persian people are for them and supporting them. And, and the picture we get is that they are coming equipped to run the temple, We've got everything we need. We've got all the pieces to do it. We've got the priests. We've got the Levites. We've got the servants, members of the royal house. We've got a choir to boot. we got everything. But what exactly do you do with a full temple staff and no temple? It's kind of like showing up with like a hockey team ready to go, but there's no hockey rink, you know? They're going to have a lot to do before they can properly use all these pieces the way they're intending. Uh, so they're showing up with a long to-do list. Everything is on it. And they're going to have to figure out how to prioritize. How do you get started? They're going to have to decide what to do first before everything else can be figured out. So near the end of chapter 2, this motley crew of exiles, they arrive in Jerusalem, they get there safely to Jerusalem, or what's left of it. It's just rubble. And they come to the site of Solomon's temple, which, like the city, has been flattened. So Jerusalem and the temple are really not in any better shape than the northern kingdom at this point, right? They're just lost to history. And maybe some of the elderly people with them would remember this temple, uh, but there aren't any photographs, and they don't have blueprints. Nobody knows how it was built or how exactly to recreate it at this point, so this is not a fixer-upper situation. It's a total rebuild, right? 
No skeleton to work with, nothing. And I want to look again at the scene of their arrival here at the end of chapter 2. Starting in verse 68, it says, Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest's garments. Now, the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all of the rest of Israel in their towns. Okay. So a couple quick things, and you kind of have to supply the imagery because we're not in their shoes, and so we're not feeling the same emotions when it just says that they arrived. Um... Imagine showing up to your glorious homeland and seeing this mess. Because I'm betting it would be hard to even tell what was what. You can tell where the city was based on only the rubble. And, and not only that, the city wasn't just destroyed. It's been sitting now for decades, right? 70 years. Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that things don't tend to fix themselves or get better when left alone. Uh, they don't stay the way you left them. They get worse. Uh, that's why I have weeds in my garden, even though I pulled them like last week. I even have dust in my kitchen, and I'm pretty sure we dusted at least once this year. But things have a tendency to deteriorate when left to do their own thing. Now, some of you were here to help with the cleanup yesterday. I'm not going to point to those who weren't. I'm not keeping score. Joe might be, but not me. But why do we come here at least once a year to do this cleanup? Because everything looks like crap after one year. We didn't have to do anything for it to get that way. It just happens. We're covered in poison ivy and weeds and all kinds of things. Things deteriorate. Everything will fall apart if not maintained. This includes everything from marriages to modern cities. Now, you could make the argument that even in a messy house for instance, like mine, uh, it can at least be said to appear lived in, you know, in some manner of speaking. That's a nice way of saying it, but no one would say at this point that Jerusalem even looks lived in, right? Even if the Babylonians had not destroyed Jerusalem, it would still be in shambles just from being empty all these years because no one maintained it. You have overgrown with weeds, trees growing in the middle of where streets should be, wild animals... And I think it would be hard to know this was ever a city at all after a while. And to find the temple would have required, like, studying the rubble for specific broken stones, you know? And so once they see this, they realize this project's going to be a lot harder than we thought. And they start to realize that even with the generosity of the Persians, they don't have enough to make this happen. Uh, they have animals, they have some money, they have some supplies, but it's not enough to rebuild a whole city. And they don't have enough hands to do it anyway. Uh, Cyrus had given them all those vessels from the old temple, so yeah, they've got some silver and gold in that form, but that's not money they can spend. That's not what you would consider liquid assets. They need those for later. So I'm thinking this would be a depressing sight, like most of my to-do lists. And it would be overwhelming, and it would be very discouraging, and there would be at least some temptation among some of them, I would imagine, to turn around and go the heck back, you know? Like, that was the attitude of their forefathers in the wilderness after the Exodus. You know, God graciously releases you from exile only to leave you in an empty wasteland. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? Delivers you from one thing only to leave you wondering why he took you here. 
and you start to realize the promised land doesn't always look all that promising. I've always been drawn to fixer-upper houses, much to my wife's chagrin, but I, I tend to see the potential in a, in a house like that. But one thing that never really attracted me when we've looked at, you know, when we've been house shopping over the years at different times, it's never appealing to see an empty lot for sale. That's too much work even for me. I don't need that. But I imagine a pile of rubble is even worse. And not only that, this is also the scene of tremendous death and carnage and decay. It's hard to emphasize that enough, because this, this rubble had been a battlefield, and it is a grave for their fathers. Granddad is buried under these stones. It would almost feel haunted. So what's the first thing you do when you see this depressing sight? Well, to their credit, they didn't turn around, but they also can't stay there. So the families who have some money, it says, the ones who had any to spare, they, they throw it into the pot. Not every family has that kind of money, but a few do. Uh, but I don't want you to miss what a big deal that is, because even for those families that had extra cash on hand, no one in this crowd has what you would call disposable income. Nobody has income. Uh, they don't have crops planted. They're not, you know, collecting on their investments or anything like that. There's no jobs lined up when they get here. So every extra penny, you would think they would need that to just get by. And yet, they generously give whatever they can spare, and this is essentially their down payment. They're saying, like, we're still in. It doesn't look very promising, but we're in for the long haul. Money talks, as they say, and of course... We know money isn't everything. It'll take more than money to rebuild this thing. But as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So they are affirming that they remain committed. And they also include in their gifts priest garments, which again shows their optimism. And it hasn't wavered in spite of everything. They're saying, you know, we expect the temple to get done. And uh, this is an act of faith that God will keep his promises. But after that, because they can't stay here, they go back to their towns meaning whatever villages that are still standing out in the countryside. Everyone goes back to wherever they have some sort of connection. Some distant cousin who owns a farm somewhere, or just a hotel, or whatever you can find. Now, this would be a strange and maybe tense homecoming. We're going to see more about how the locals felt about the returning exiles. Uh, but for now, Ezra just says that's what they did. They went back to their home villages and crashed there, because what else could they do? And the real work begins a little later. It's not clear how much later. We're not really sure when they first arrive. But he says that in the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month, in the month of Tishri, this would be, that's roughly September, they all gather again at the Temple Mount. And I want you to see what their priorities are and what they do first with this list. In chapter 3, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem, then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of, Mose, law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. What do you do first? When you don't know how to start. When the to-do list is impossibly long, how do you get started? 
they begin with worship. They have almost nothing to work with, but there's a lot of rubble, which means there's stones everywhere, and that's all you need to build an altar. You don't need much to worship God. That's even more true now. Since Christ has come, uh, the, the old sacrifice system, that's no longer necessary. Jesus has already died and offered the perfect eternal sacrifice, so we don't even need the stones for an altar anymore. And I thought about that. I thought about that in terms of our church and and as individuals i thought you know as a church like no matter where we worship it doesn't take much uh, and that should be an encouragement to the building committee uh but it's equally true for us as individuals it doesn't take much to worship god the conditions don't need to be perfect which is good because they often aren't i think some of us feel like it's hard to find the perfect situation for worship, and I, I think that's frequently true in our personal devotional lives, if we'll admit it. Uh, Georgia is very disciplined. She gets up in the morning. She does her Bible reading. She keeps a prayer journal. She has a nice little nook set up in her sewing room where I don't go, and that's great. Uh, but me, I, I can barely see straight in the morning, and so when I get up, I, I think, like, well, I need to make coffee first. So I do that, and if it's chilly, I like to light a fire so that everything's cozy now in the living room, right? And by the time I finally get situated in my chair, that's around the time that Gwen and Evie are coming down, and they're supposed to do their Bible reading, see? And that usually turns into arguing and fighting over something, because that's what they do. And um, then I'm policing them instead of reading and praying. And um, you come to realize there is no such thing as quiet time in a house with six kids. It just doesn't happen. And um, so finding the perfect conditions to read and reflect and to pray can be difficult. And now, at that point, I realize, you know, it's like an hour and a half after the alarm. And you know what happens? My to-do list becomes my dominant thought. Everything else that needs to happen today. And my attention is now permanently divided. How can I worship? How can I focus on Christ when there's so much to do? My living room often looks like rubble. How do I focus now? But this passage reminds us that it doesn't take much to worship God. What do I really need to have straightened out before I can pray? What do I need before I can thank God or glorify Him? What would it cost me to sing His praises in the car or even just listen to His praises instead of listening to a podcast like I usually would do? Do I really need perfect quiet, hot coffee, and no distractions? I mean, like, look, those are good things. There's a reason we provide coffee here at church. Uh, there's a reason, you know, we, we, I pray almost every week downstairs with the elders that, you know, God would sweep away our distractions for worship. Joe told me we're running the air conditioning right now just so we don't have to open the windows and hear all the neighbors and what's going on else on the block, right? We're trying to clear away the distractions. That's not a bad thing, but... You don't need the circumstances to be ideal to glorify God. And it's when they're not ideal, in fact, that that might be when we most need to. 
And this is further demonstrated by what Ezra says in verse 3 here, when Ezra says that fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And that's the first clue we get that this was not a happy homecoming. Uh, the locals are not excited to have them here. Uh, they have the blessing of the king, but not the neighbors, if you understand. And, and it's not that different than how people feel today. Like, maybe you've paid attention in recent news. I mean, they're constantly news about the border, right? And some governors in the border states uh, make a habit of sending illegal immigrants to other cities outside of their state. You know, I'm not going to comment on the politics of that, but you'll notice that everyone's upset about it, right? People are angry. People feel threatened. Like, people are bending out of shape about the issue because a huge influx of migrants puts a lot of strain on local services and the economy, doesn't it? And it changes the dynamics, especially in a small town. The locals don't expect, they don't exactly roll out a red carpet when this happens, right? And the same held true here. Like, if you show up in these villages and you're like, oh, well, you know, my ancestors lived here 70 years ago, that's not going to impress anybody. You're still just taking up space in my village, and we don't have the jobs, we don't have the housing, and we don't have the food for all of you people. So yes, they are afraid of the locals already. We're going to see more about that as the story goes on. But I love the way it's worded here, because it says that they set the altar in its place for fear was on them. They don't build the altar in spite of their fear, they build it because of it. The fear of their neighbors drives them to worship God. Fear drives them to the throne. I am afraid, therefore I must worship and glorify God. I wonder how often that's true for you and me. Does fear drive you back to the Lord or does it bury you? Does it make you question his goodness, or does it remind you of how badly you need him? You realize that word, that one word, for, in that sentence carries a lot of meaning, and I, I personally found it both convicting and reassuring at the same time, because fear can tend to make me, to keep me from focusing on my Savior. Uh, it can be very distracting, but our God does not turn away the fearful. He invites them to come and worship, not in spite of your lousy circumstances, but because of them. Because where else are you going to find hope? So the first thing they do is they worship, but I want you to look also at what they do next. Beginning in verse 4. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required, and after that the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So the worship continues, as you can see. Uh, they immediately begin doing all the things that they can. They've got daily services and sacrifices happening. And if you look ahead to verse 8, you will learn that they did this for two years. Two years they observed all the sacrifices, all the feasts, all the stuff, and all they had was an altar. And what really jumps out to me here is the feasting part. And particularly because they started with the Feast of Booths, 
or, or tabernacles. It's, it's a fall festival. I mean, it was the, the suit, suitable time. But the irony here, of course, is pretty stunning because for the first time in decades, the Feast of Booze is being celebrated in Jerusalem. But for once, like, they actually need the booths. <laughs> the purpose of this feast was to remember the days when they were living in the wilderness after the Exodus, before they had a homeland, when they all lived in tents. God wanted them to remember, look, you had once been homeless. Don't forget it. And the irony, of course, is that they really are homeless again, right? They have to stay in the tents because there are no homes in Jerusalem, which means that the only thing that changed was that they feasted. They were already in tents. And here's the thing. The Feast of Booths was a joyous holiday. It's, it's different a little bit in, in flavor from the more solemn Jewish holidays. This was a holiday for resting and feasting. I want you to hear the, uh, the commandment as God gave it back in Leviticus 23 real quick. The command about the Feast of Booths, it says, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest, and you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees branches of palm leaves and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. When I took Hebrew at Westminster, I'll never forget that once full semester, I, my professor had us observe in a small way all the Jewish holidays of the Old Testament as we were going through the year. And she explained them and she told us how Jews observed them then and today. And I remember her telling us that the Feast of Tabernacles, that was the fun holiday. Before all the heavy, more serious festivals of the fall, you start with the fun festival. And even today, that's, that's the vibe you get at the Feast of Booths. And... and there's something kind of fun about living in tents, really, because we don't have to, right? I've mentioned before, camping loses its appeal for me the more I age, and, and Georgia feels the same way. But I do appreciate about camping, like, I realize that the fun comes because it's a novelty. Because I have a house, living in a tent is fun for a few days. It's like kind of like putting up a tree in your house at Christmas time, right? It's a novelty. It's quirky and it's fun because it's weird. It's the exception to the rule. It's only for a little while, a few weeks, or until Valentine's Day in my house. And today, if you look at the way that, that the Feast of Booths is celebrated, it's, it's, they're literally not for living in, not in most Jewish households. Like, if you look it up, like, you can see pictures of, like, modern apartments in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, and they build, like, a little shelter, like, on their balcony. It's cute, you know? Uh, but it's just kind of fun. And that's what strikes me. This was a fun holiday. They're throwing a party in the graveyard. A feast with food and rest and generally enjoying fellowship for eight days. It's like Memorial Day camping trip, but two times longer. And I thought to myself, like, 
those tents in Ezra's day, they're not just props. Like, this was their home for long stretches. And here they are. They've got a long to-do list. They're, they've got so many projects. Everything needs to be done. They're scared of their neighbors. They're generally unsure of how this whole thing is going to work out. They're probably very uncomfortable sleeping like this day after day after day. And yet they celebrate. Meaning they worship and they have fun. And it occurred to me that these guys must really know their shorter catechism. Because what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify him, in other words, worship, and to enjoy him. In other words, to celebrate. And that is not dependent on your circumstances. I, I wonder what keeps us from worshiping and celebrating like that. Worry. Uh, a long to-do list. These things affect me. Uh, distractions. Maybe discomfort, physical or otherwise. Maybe fear. Fear has a way of feeding into anger, and that's a toxic thing for worship and having fun if you're angry. We have a million impediments and excuses to not worship and enjoy God. I, I mean, you think about it. In, in, in churches across America, we know that the music is often lame, the coffee is generally bad, and the seats are often uncomfortable, the buildings are often ugly, the preaching is often boring. And people will often say, like, I just don't feel fed, right? But being fed and feeling fed are not always the same thing. And if the gospel is being preached, then the Holy Spirit is there, and we should be worshiping and celebrating. And what this passage tells me is when your circumstances are lousy and when you don't know what to do, and when the to-do list in your life is impossibly long and you don't know how to get started, and the money is short, and people hate you, and you're scared, and you're probably angry and distracted and uncomfortable, the best thing you can do is to glorify God and enjoy Him. That sounds counterintuitive. Worship and celebrate. Praise Him and have fun while doing it. That's what the people were doing in Ezra's day. They glorified and enjoyed God with nothing but a pile of rocks for two years. Beloved, we have far more to be thankful for than they did. More cause to glorify God, more reason to celebrate. We're not trusting merely in shadows the way they were. We don't even need an altar. Christ has already fulfilled the need for that. And we're not waiting for the day when the temple will be rebuilt because, beloved, we are the temple. That's what we remember today. Today's Pentecost. As believers, Christ dwells within us by his Spirit. We have a power in us that they couldn't even dream of. So I don't know what kind of challenges you all are facing this week. I know I've got my, my mountain of worries I saw Georgia the other morning was feverishly making a to-do list. That was, that was Friday night, and then she woke up with a start on, on Saturday thinking of even more things she could add. And I'm like, that's me, babe. Like, don't be like me. Don't do that, you know. But I, I hope that this passage encourages you, as it does me, uh, that our God 
accepts the praises and the celebration of people facing impossible challenges, people who are scared. We can glorify and enjoy our God because he is good, even when our circumstances are not. You have the Holy Spirit, and the gospel is true even when you're surrounded by rubble. And that's good news no matter what else is happening. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you are a God who restores your people. And we thank you for the faith and the confidence of the people in Ezra's day. Lord, that they could find the energy and the joy to worship and to celebrate you, even in a graveyard surrounded by rubble. Lord, give us that kind of faith and enthusiasm, Lord. We pray that you would give us that counterintuitive urge that when things are hard and when things are bad, that we would turn in worship and celebration of you because you are good and because you care for us and because you sent your son to die for us and there is no condemnation on us anymore. Teach us that this week, Lord, and always. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.